by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the POSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Mills, who is a professor at the University of Lincoln in the UK. He currently consults at the University Animal Behavior Clinic, and in 2020, he was recognized by Stanford University as part of the top 2% of all scientists that you're doing on all kinds of species in all kinds of contexts with all kinds of methods dogs and horses and more your books and everything else but of course there might also be people listening that don't know who you are so if you could start with a short introduction to yourself that would be wonderful so i'm i'm a veterinary specialist in problem behavior and what that means is i, I most of my research has been on trying to understand individual differences in animals and particularly from a practical point of view, how that results in problem behavior, but increasingly trying to understand animal emotions because most of the problem behavior that we have to deal with um, really reflects sort of problems of emotional arousal. So either the animal is showing an inappropriate emotion, so it's getting frustrated in situations where you would rather it wasn't, or perhaps the emotion is appropriate but it's of a problematic intensity so you know it's okay for a dog to be scared of fireworks but it shouldn't be that, that scared that it completely disrupts their their life and um, their quality of life as well um, or you know the dog is pleased to see you but he's, he's so exuberant he's completely out of control and so sort of what I've been doing over the last 30 plus years is trying to develop from a research point of view, a framework that allows us to gain greater insight into that emotional system um, and um, trying to work out how we can assess animals' emotions more um, systematically rather than just, well, I think it, it looks like he's in that way. Because the more you look in the scientific literature, the more you realize just how little there was. There's been you know, great growth in research on animal cognition um, and studying how animals think and that and I've, I've published some work in that area but actually understanding how animals feel and increasingly it seems that um, animals are very tuned in to emotion much more um, the more I've studied animal cognition the more I realize that actually a lot of animals work using very simple rules but they're very observant um, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about the area that I work in that you know some some people have said to me, isn't it like unmasking the magician? You know, you see the, the magician's trick and then if you know how it's done, um, you know, isn't it a bit disappointing? Well, actually, then you realize just how clever the magician is, you know, and how smart that if, if you use that. So I don't see it as disappointing at all when I realize that animals are not using the human processes necessarily to solve similar sorts of problems. They may be using much simpler rules, um, but they're incredibly observant. Um, and if we're, if we're not careful, if we just 
project our own, the way that we solve problems into animals, then our expectations of those animals change accordingly. People then have unrealistic expectations. That's when they can get into problems as well. So there's always that undercurrent of these are the practical issues as well. And yeah, you know, animal welfare and problem behavior have always been at the heart of what I do, even the, the core work. Wonderful. So interesting already. So many things there to unpack. Just going back to, you know, your specialism being a veterinarian and then, you know, how did you get into this field? Of course, you know, some people listening might be interested to, you know, roll, get into academia or do more research. How did you get into the field of animal behavior and the study that you're doing now? So, so my background is actually really unconventional. Um, as I said, I'm a vet by first degree and I went to vet school largely because, uh, and I know this sounds a terrible thing to say, because, um, but really because I wasn't sure what else I wanted to do. Uh, my father was a vet. He wasn't that keen on any of the five children that I was one that was the youngest of going into the profession, partly because he'd had a, a bad experience. Um, and I just sort of thought, well, you know, I can't see myself doing anything else. And if I go to vet school, I've got five years to think about it. And, you know, nowadays you interview people and they've always thought, oh, I've always wanted to be a vet, you know, and all my life and they do this and they're so dedicated. And I sort of just applied and I got offered a place and I got the grades and I ended up at vet school and it was, I had a lot of fun at university. I've, I actually really struggled with the course. Nobody, nobody would have labelled me as the academic at, at university. Um, and one evening I went to a lecture called The Interdependence of the Behaviour Sciences by uh, the late Sir Robert Hind. And I didn't know who he was. Uh, very, very, people who don't know him, very, very eminent um, biologist from Cambridge. But it... I just went to this talk because it was an evening talk. And I thought that sounded interesting. I knew I was interested in behavior and it was absolutely mind blowing. And he just had this enormous knowledge and grasp of it all and showed how all the disciplines come together and how everybody could contribute anything. And, um, and so I wrote to him and didn't know, as I didn't know who he was, I just took a copy of the poster as I left the lecture and thought, well, I'll write to him. He's at um, Magdalen College in Cambridge. And I said, look, I'm a vet. I'm interested in behavior. What should I do with my life? I went to your talk. It was brilliant. And he wrote this beautiful handwritten letter saying how nice it was to get compliments about his uh, his talk and um, how important it was that vets were interested in this field because he hadn't mentioned it. And he said, but it is important, this, that and the other. And I should really consider. And I was thinking, OK, I can go with this. Um, and I was also fortunate at Bristol that I had a very good uh, mentor in Christine Nicholl, who you obviously know very well, and she supervised my undergraduate project. And she really introduced me to the research side of things. Um, and I just thought, yeah, this is what I've really wanted to do. I've always enjoyed learning. And I actually found many aspects of the veterinary degree quite frustrating because it was a question of learn this and then you can apply it. And I just don't operate in that way. I have to think through things from first principles. So when I had anatomy, I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to remember these facts and I really struggled. And, you know, I got through the vet course, um, but, you know, 
I was not an academic high flyer because it was just a fact after fact after fact. And, um, you know, when it came to surgery exams in the finals, I, I went back to my anatomy and thought, you know, I can't learn all these procedures. And when I, because I'd spent all that time learning the anatomy, I thought, well, it's obvious you have to make the incision there because otherwise the dog's going to bleed out if you <laughs> go anywhere else, you know? Um, so, so, you know, and I've always had that inquiring mind and that I was very fortunate, you know, that I was, yeah, that's the way I was brought up, you know, ask questions, explore, and it's about having that curious mind. And I think it's something which I'm sad that it's been lost a lot in national curricula as people have focused more and more on assessment. This is what you have to do to pass. Um, but anyway, so I went to vet school. Um, I graduated and I was offered a job working for the PDSA, which is a charity in the UK that offers free veterinary care for um, individuals on low incomes who can't afford private care. And the beauty of that, from a, my point of view at that stage of my career, was that you couldn't refer anything. You either did it or somebody in the practice did it or it didn't get done. So it was a, it was a great training ground. I had some great colleagues there. Um, I met my wife there <laughs> as well. So, um, uh, and, and so I, I learned an enormous amount. And again, it was that learning about things, but they also gave me the opportunity because I was interested in behavior on setting up behavior clinics, not just in the practice, but for the whole of the Southwest district in the UK, um, which actually covered the South of Wales. So all the way from Swansea down to Plymouth where I was based. So they were very supportive of me there. And I just thought, you know, I, I enjoy this aspect. Um, but also one of the things that struck me working in that charity was so many of the problems that I saw, I thought these could just be prevented with decent education. And, you know, there was a real lack of knowledge. When I went to vet school, I was given one afternoon on the management of cats and dogs because cats and dogs are loved by their owners. So they're managed well, surely. And they said, no, they're not. They're, they're managed by people who love their animals, but that in itself creates biases in the way they see things. And that means that that can lead them, unfortunately, to not do things um, in the right way. So, so that really brought home to me the importance of education. And after a few years, I then went into general mixed practice. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I uh, continued with some of the behavior work there. And then an advert came for this... At that stage, agriculture sort of in the mid 90s was agricultural colleges in the UK and agricultural education was dying on its feet. Um, and there was this bit of a crisis for a lot of the agricultural colleges. What are they going to do? And they were looking at ways of diversifying. And what was Lincolnshire College of Agriculture validated the first degree in equine science. Um, and they, they were told they needed two people to add to the core team that they had to deliver it. They needed a vet to teach the equine health, and then they needed um, somebody to teach the equine behavior. And the guy in charge said, well, I'm not gonna get two members of staff, I'll get one, I'll get a vet with an interest in behavior. And so this advert appeared for a vet with an interest in behavior. And it was just sort of one of these bizarre situations whereby it just appeared and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to apply for it. And I was actually applying for jobs elsewhere in, in practice. I've been offered a partnership in the practice I was in, but I just thought, no, this isn't the right practice for me. It's not in the right place, um, et cetera. And sort of the, the mix of the work wasn't quite what I want. So I applied for this job and got offered it. And I've been in Lincolnshire ever since. So what was Lincolnshire 
College of Agriculture became De Montfort University. And when the University of Lincoln was formed in the early part of the 2000s, De Montfort handed over its Lincoln schools to the University of Lincoln. So I've been in three institutions without actually changing my job. And I just love it. You know, I've, they gave me a lot of free reign. I said to them that, and I think one, maybe one of the reasons why I got the job is I said, I thought there was an, there was an opening for undergraduate degrees in animal behavior, which at that time, if you wanted to study animal behavior, you had to do it at master's level. Um, and, you know, I quickly developed the undergraduate degree and had to teach myself an awful lot about the topic. Um, I can, I was employed there uh, ostensibly to do the equine work because the animal behavior degree took off. They brought in another vet quickly to teach the health side. I continued with the behavior and I got to admit, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I love horses, but I'd never been, had much training in them. And when I had to deliver the equine behavior course, I largely just thought, well, you know, how would you manage a horse if it was first principles and, you know, you can train horses and people start to think, oh, that's a bit different. You mean using positive reinforcement in horses? And I'm thinking, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and and so my lecture notes quickly became my first book <laughs> on equine behavior. And, um, and I just sort of saw the opportunities that I had um, and pursued them and continued to do the research on the horses, but also got, as I said, the animal behavior up and running and focused more on the companion animals. And um, yeah, I've, I've now sort of carried on and I'm continuing to do it increasingly sort of moving more towards, as I say, there's obviously the fundamental work that has grown out of that, trying to understand animals, the conflicts. I've always felt sorry for horses, the way that they're, they're managed. Um, and, you know, they're such a great example of that well-meaning owner. But, you know, if you showed an owner a picture of a horse in a field, a mud, slightly muddy or in a clean stable, and you say, which of these is a preferable environment for the horse? They'll, of course, pick the stable. But actually, the majority of horses, I, I remember going to um, a conference in Switzerland and a guy was talking about he had the um, a sort of a shelter for the horses. And he said, well, as long as they were out of the wind and, and you know, uh, you know, they were much happier being in the field than even going into the shelter. And the only time they stayed in the shelter was when the snow was so deep, they physically couldn't get out. And I was thinking, yeah, we perhaps over confine them. Um, and, you know, from a lot of those ideas and trying to understand my PhD ended up and I ended up doing it on the job. So, you know, I didn't have a classic PhD training, um, but my PhD brought together those interests in behavior and uh, my veterinary career. So I, I looked at three repetitive behavior problems in horses. I looked at um, head shaking, which is a problem that is traditionally thought of as a veterinary problem. And I knew that there were loads of differentials and it just seemed to be if you've got a head shaking horse, people weren't keen to go to the vet because there were about 60, 70 differentials and it seemed to be hit and miss. And so I thought, well, you know, if this was a behavior problem, you, you'd, you'd look more closely at the behavior of head shaking and see if you could distinguish different forms. So I used behavioral knowledge to try and improve our understanding of head shaking. Then I looked at uh, cribbing, which was a seen as a behavioral problem or a vice of horses um, and thought, you know, these animals, there's, there's some evidence starting to come out that, you know, was this associated with colic? Yes or no. 
Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we can look at this more carefully. And coincidentally, um, I say my former mentor, Christine Nichol, and I were completely independently started to think about this in terms of um, problems with the GI system. And she was um, working on a, a funded project looking at developing antacids. And I stumbled across it in relation to an old Victorian book, which talked about cribbing in horses. And it said that a traditional treatment was to put salt um, and um, straw in the manger uh, and, a, and a bit of chalk. And you just think, well, hang on, why is that? And you see, well, the chalk is an antacid. The straw there adds fiber, continues to chew, and the salt increases salivation. And somebody I knew at the time came to me and said, had I ever heard of differences in cribbing horses according to where they lived? Because he was sort of working in this area on chalk, um, on the chalk downs. And he thought there was less cribbing there. And, you know, these things came together. And that, that's the way oft, often science does start, you know. And I think this is the thing you say sort of, well, what was my career? It's often good luck and chance events that actually stimulate some of the great or the, the best ideas because they're very original. They just happen to come together. And so we literally went and bought tons of Rennies, which are these antacid tablets, you know. Uh, I, th I think they're probably the same the world over the name, but Tums, that sort of thing. and started pumping them into horses with cribbing and to our surprise they they greatly reduced in their cribbing um so we got, got in contact with a food company and we did some trials and and that's sort of where that side and then the third thing that i looked at was weaving in horses where they re repetitively rock from side to side and you know started to sort of look at that as an issue and think well again you know what can we do by way of intervention and um so we looked at the use, we'd, again, there was this work that had shown that, that social contact might be important. So again, from the veterinary point of view, I was thinking, well, what, how can I translate that into a treatment? So we, we, the stables we had were designed that we could vary the social contact because we just set up this course, we could specify the design of them. We had that great opportunity. And we found that when they had contact through bars in adjacent stables, the weaving seemed to stop. So they didn't need much physical conduct, didn't need to groom each other. And then thought, well, because we had this small portal about a meter by a meter, thought, well, what happens if we shove a mirror in there? And much to our surprise, it seemed to have the same effect. And so again, you know, so again, it's just those sort of fortuitous events um, just went into those three areas. And that synthesis of the veterinary side and the behavioral side has, I think, again, one of the characteristics of my career of bringing that together a lot of the time so i've worked with some really good you know basic scientists and i can often see that practical spin and say actually that has a practical application and and that you know um you know one of the early pieces of work i did was with a, a primate a neurophysiologist and he'd been working in um, monkeys looking at vision and i said that'd be really cool to do in dogs and he said why and i said well you know if if that happens in macaques then it'd be interesting to see if it happens in dogs nobody ever looked at that and he said yeah okay you know and we we set up the experiment and sure enough we found that dogs have what's known as a left gaze bias when you look at the face and the left gaze bias basically means that um if you look at a face 
then you tend to see more of the right side of the person's face that your your gaze is biased to the left so you know if you look at in a mirror you um and it's because the rights it, in humans it's because the right side of the brain is involved in processing faces and so you get that bias and that biases your vision and we didn't know much then about how dogs viewed faces but it meant that the faces were holistically interpreted uh, because you've got this area for evaluating the whole of a face so that's why you know people can see faces in all sorts of things you can look at the clouds and you can see a face because our brain is primed to pick out certain features and eyes and a mouth um and you know that bit of the brain is situated in the uh the right hand side so it gives us a left gaze bias and you know i've been showing my colleague had shown that this happened in macaques as well and i said well let's do it with dogs because they spend a lot of time with people and to our surprise they did seem to show it but then we found even more surprising is that when the quality of the face changed, so the bias shifted. So if you present the, um, a dog with a picture of a happy face, um, or um, you actually start to lose the bias, and then started to get interested in this idea that, well, the two halves of the brain are also involved in processing emotional information. So the right side of the brain is more involved in processing negative information and the left side more in processing the positive information. So you, you basically had this conflict between the bit of the brain that was active processing faces and then the bit that was processing the emotion. And, um, you know, and then when you got a neutral face, you got left gaze bias. And my colleague said to me, well, you know, why would you get the, uh, with the neutral face? And I said, well, because if you're a dog, then, you know, when do you ever see a neutral face? It's a weird thing. So you're going to process it as negative. And then again, as we did it, that in humans, one of the things they do with facial processing is they do what's known as the facial inversion. They turn the face upside down and you lose the left gaze bias because you haven't got two eyes above a mouth. You've got two dots below a curve and it, doesn't figure but with dogs they were still processing it as if with the left gaze bias and when we did that first experiment he's uh, my colleague Kung Guo has said that we were doing this with he said well that doesn't make any sense and I said well it does from a dog's point of view because a dog may be lying on its back looking at a face and so he's got to be able to represent a face upside down as well but that's what's also led us to then think about well maybe it's more to do with the valence or the emotional valence rather than facial processing um and you know the jury is still out on whether or not dogs do have a specialized area for processing faces we think they probably do but it's quite different to humans because they've got to be able to recognize you know we're primates used to hanging around in trees if somebody's you know if somebody's upside down the chances are they've fallen out the tree um uh you know so we greet face on face whereas dogs greet upside down and all sorts and so they need to be able to do it and so dogs have to work incredibly hard and this is one of the things that comes through uh that as i said the more research i've done work dogs work incredibly hard to fit in with us um and they do it by being very perceptive everybody knows the dog has a great sense of smell but actually one of the things that makes a dog a dog rather than a wolf is we have partly selected, but also its early environment is it learns that using visual information is really valuable for understanding people or not necessarily understanding, but fitting in with people. And if you can fit in with your human, you get an easy life.
And so, you know, that's brought me to some of my more recent work looking at pain and problem behavior, because as we've started to enter into that mindset that dogs are using simple rules and dogs will try to fit in if they can, you start to ask the question, well, if somebody has a problem with their dog, then why is that? Is it because they don't know what's required of them or is it because it's too hard for them to do? And if it's too hard for them to do, that could be because pain is holding them back. So when a dog growls, you know, a dog is saying, please back off. And in the clinic, if a client says to me, you know, well, you know, my dog's being aggressive to the children. Um, and I you know, and I say, well, what do you want us to achieve with that? And they say, well, I want you to stop all of the aggression. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I don't want him growling at the kids. And I said, I'm not going to teach you to stop your dog from growling. I could. But the last thing you want is a dog that doesn't growl when he feels the need. And you need to first of all realize that a growl is the dog's way of saying, please back off. Um, I will, you know, now if you understand that, we can start to then think, why does the dog feel the need to growl? And let's work on that and the circumstances. Um, and, you know, if there's a medical element, then we'll deal with that medical element. Then we'll deal with the pain that, that the dog may be in. Um, or you know why the dog feels threatened in that situation we can help you in that situation but please you know always remember a dog that growls is a helpful dog to you because it's not biting you he's giving you the signals to tell you to back off um so you know it, it it goes round and round in cycles every time you know i do a bit of work it leads me somewhere else it keeps me busy it keeps me out of mischief Yes, it's so fascinating because, you know, as you're talking, I can totally see that, of course, you know, most of my work is in zoos and aquariums, but just as you're talking about these things and upside down and, you know, I'm thinking about sloths that are hanging upside down and some primates are, you know, with prehensile tails and their behaviors hmm. are very much upside down. So who could do some of this and who wouldn't necessarily, depending hmm. on, you know, what they're doing and their lifestyles are. And, you know, yeah, it's so interesting to think, you know, I can see all these cascades of how you're connecting. And what I also really liked, and it reminded me of a, a good friend of mine uh, who unfortunately passed away, uh, Graham Law at the University in Glasgow, but he also talked about books and books being inspirations for learning about natural behavior, like travel books, people going into, you know, the wild and seeing animals do certain things and then kind of using that knowledge you know, in caring for animals in a human setting. And so your, you know, reference to the Victorian book and some of the things that people were doing so that their inspiration is in so many places, right? So it's really, really interesting. And also just to go back, you know, you mentioned things like first principles. What, when you say that, what do you mean by that? I can't remember, to be honest. I just want to pick up on the Victorian book, because one of the things about the Victorians, uh, you know, the, the old books, is people may not have had that much by way of education, but they were great observers. And that's the key thing for understanding animals, is to look at them and to try and look at them in a, you know, dispassionate way, but to try and understand. So, you know, in the old Victorian age, if you were a wealthy person and you had your horses, you had your ostler. The ostler was the person. They literally lived with the horses and they made these great observations. We might not know the reason why. And I think there's still a wealth of information there um, that we can still tap into as, as scientists. I, 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 going back to the issue of first principles. So, yeah, or learning from first principles. So I can, you know, I 
I, I have a Danish wife. I really struggle to learn languages. Um, and I'll just tell you a little side story. You can take it out if you don't think it's relevant. But, you know, when my second son was born, my um, eldest was about um, just over two. And um, we went to see them in the hospital. And I, I, I took the eldest because I was looking after him. And we, we came back that evening and I asked him what book he wanted to read. And he picked one of his Danish books. And, you know, bear in mind, I'd, we've been together for a good number of years. I tried to learn Danish. I could understand it more than I can speak it. And um, he, he picked this book and I thought, well, OK, you know, I'm not going to hesitate. I'm just going to go with the flow. And so I read him this little book and he just looked up at me and said, Daddy, you're not very good at this, are you? I think if a two-year-old can see through my linguistic abilities, what hope do I have? You know, at school, I really struggle to learn things like poetry, um, you know, things, just those sorts of facts. But if, if something made logical sense, then it was easy. And I think that's it. So for me, it's about logic isn't, a, isn't an issue. Getting the facts... And, you know, the birth of the Internet has been great for me because you don't have to carry many facts with you. You can just Google them. If you know how to use Google properly, you know, you look for the various bits of evidence. And yes, that's true. You know, that's the danger is people just go for one reference source and then they think it's true. But and it, it's it's a bit like, you know, when language was invented, some of the ancient Greeks were worried, uh, written language. Uh, because they said people are going to lose the tradition of, you know, being able to memorize um, the, the great classics like the Odyssey and, you know, things like that. And people said, oh, well, the written language is, is going to undermine that. And sure enough, it did. But because you could write things down, it freed up your brain to do other things. And it's a little bit like now with the Internet. Our education system, in fact, I was chatting to um, family about this at lunch. Our education system is still obsessed with learning facts when actually, yes, you do need a certain amount of factual knowledge, but what you really need is to know how to apply those facts. You know, we, the technological revolution, we're going to need very creative people, you know, within the rest of my lifetime to solve some of the challenges we're coming up against. But still the education system is focused on teaching facts and assessing facts in exams, as opposed to assessing problem solving. And that's the thing I love about the master's students that I teach that you know, my, my teaching is very much, the lectures, I give them to them pre-recorded partly because of COVID, but it's been so good because I can spend the time thinking, right, you got the information, how do you apply it? And again, that's me, the vet coming out, you know, his, you've got the factual information, how do you apply it to make a diagnosis? And that was a real challenge in the behavior field, dealing with problem behavior in animals. You know, how do you make a diagnosis? And, you know, I'm a, I'm an amateur philosopher in so much I like reading sort of um, some of the uh, philosophical stuff and and thinking about how we think and how we come to conclusions. So and and it's quite useful in my field because obviously somebody who owns an animal, they have their own perspective and it's very easy to be blind to your own biases. I know I've got biases um, and I hope my friends point them out when when they crop up and they're not very helpful. I don't, I'm not one of these people who say you can get rid of all your biases. And I think, again, that's a slightly dangerous attitude in society that there is almost like this pressure, you know, that 
as if everybody can be completely neutral and not have any biases and and not have any evil thoughts or whatever and i just think that's naive the reality is we all have our biases what we need is we need a community that points it out and so that we don't do any harm with them um that to me is a much more helpful way of going about so when it comes to science again think recognizing people's biases recognizing the perspectives um that there can be and you know why somebody believes something about their animal so you know, one of the areas we've done a lot of work on is frustration in, in dogs. And everybody was saying these dogs are anxious. And I was thinking, these dogs aren't anxious. These dogs are frustrated. And you'd ask them and say, well, he's showing all these signs. And thinking, well, all of these signs could mean all sorts of things. You know, no behavior pretty much is unique to any emotional state. And so trying to develop a systematic process that allowed us to make more scientific deductions about the internal state of animals is not only really important from a welfare point of view but also for me from a practical point of view as a clinician so you know it always struck me as strange in when I did animal welfare that people talked about good welfare being the absence of things as opposed to animals feeling good and you know people talked about pain and there was a lot of stuff on health and then fear people would talk about and then they talk about freedom to express normal behavior and they wouldn't talk about anything other than fear. And I think it's because, again, it was one of those biases in the laboratory. You could put electric shocks on rats. Therefore, you say, well, that's fear. And people didn't think about frustration. You know, your work in zoos, most of the zoo animal behavior problems, I suspect, are related to frustration of confinement associated with it. You know, or predictable. the environment is so highly predictable. If the animal's got a problem, then, you know boredom is basically frustration if you think about it from an emotional point of view from um so you know trying to work on those areas and then think right okay the problem is people select the evidence to support their beliefs that's one of the things the brain does naturally the brain is trying to make sense of the world around us so it naturally picks out the things that support our beliefs to try and make sense and it tests those predictions but when it comes to trying to make inferences about internal state, whether that be the well-being of animals or problem behavior, as scientists, we have to step back from that bias. And, you know, and it's what catches owners out because they believe something and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, that the dog is guilt, guilty of this. You think, well, I don't know if the dog's got the concept of guilt. But what I do know is that your body language has changed and the dog will respond to that. And, you know, so, you know, let's not think that the dog necessarily has a sense of right and wrong let's work with you know what the dog might be responding to and you know then there isn't a justification in punishing the dog for doing that you need to understand why the dog did it in the first place and punishing him after the event isn't going to solve the issue so therefore let's look at other solutions and so it gains those valuable insights and that's you know what i've been working towards with the clinical behavior and it's coming together really nicely now this systematic process for how do we make inferences and basically we look at the evidence from different sources and see if we can if there's any evidence that says it's definitely not that then we can reject it um but you know rather than just looking the evidence for support and so understanding the sort of the basis of animal emotion is absolutely key to that so you look at evidence in terms of the context could the context be interpreted is, is it 
in any in terms of any of the stimuli that might give rise to different emotional states. If there isn't anything that could, then it can't be that emotion. Is the arousal state compatible with that emotion? Sometimes animals develop habits of responding and therefore the emotional element starts to disappear, in which case it's a habitual response or the emotional arousal is just inconsistent. So, um, so for example, you know, if, if something has a very predictable outcome, if you do this behavior, the emotion can disappear. The animal can be quite highly aroused, but one of the characteristics is its heart rate will drop like a stone as soon as you take the stimulus away. So if take, for example, the dog that's barking at the postman coming to the door. Now that starts off as an emotional response, but the postman is gonna go to the next house anyway. So the postman isn't gonna hang around. So from a learning point of view, and again, understanding that neurophysiology of learning, if, if you do this, if you do a response and you get a reliable outcome, why put all the effort of having it emotionally controlled or cognitively controlled if a simple, almost reflexive response will, will suffice? So that sort of response can actually become quite habitual. Now, once it becomes habitual, what you find is that, as I said, the arousal levels go down really quickly. But the other thing is, once it becomes habitual, it actually becomes less sensitive to other environmental control factors. That makes managing it that much more challenging. But, you know, a true emotion is switched on neuro neurologically, you know, through the nervous system, but it's switched off largely endocrinologically. That takes time. So the heart rate can't suddenly drop if it's a true emotional response. You know, if somebody really frustrates you and annoys you and they walk away, you don't suddenly think, oh, I'm fine now, they've gone. You've, you need those hormones to calm you down. That takes time. So if I have a dog, which I think might be frustrated or scared, and let's say we think it's scared of fireworks and we play it, the sound of uh, fireworks in the clinic, it might show all the signs of fear. And then I switch the recording off if its heart rate drops like that, it can't have been that scared. It mu that must be now a conditioned response. That needs a different treatment to the emotional response. It doesn't mean it's not a welfare problem, um, but the owner's perception quite understandably is my dog is scared um, and therefore they've been responding in a certain way. So we, we look for evidence of arousal. We then look at evidence from sort of the behavioral tendencies I've got some new work that we're going to be kicking off starting to look at behavioral style as part of those behavioral tendencies. And then you've got the communicative element. You know, it's, it's worth being able to read emotions because if you can read, you know, what an emotional state, then, you know, you're more likely to be able to function effectively within a social group. So you've got these four lines of evidence. You've got the context, you've got the arousal, you've got the behavioral tendencies. Um, and then you've got the communicative elements and you can start to falsify and say, well, it can't be that emotion because the evidence just rejects it as opposed to, well, he's showing that sign. Therefore, it's this, which is what we tend to do. And that's that's been the big step forward, I think, from the clinical behavior is using that approach to try and falsify. Yes, wonderful. And I think it's also really interesting to hear how like you talk about, you know, diagnosing, but you also talk about what treatment, uh, this kind of line of thinking of how to approach things. And, and, you know, I think talking about education, it's certainly something that in zoos and aquariums, where we're thinking about a lot of the symptoms, if you like, that we're seeing behavioral problems, uh, other, other animal welfare concerns, 
it's kind of looking at, okay, where are they coming from? What type of systems, what type of routines, rather than trying to solve the symptoms, really looking at, you know, what does it need fundamentally changing? And of course, education everywhere plays such a really pivotal role in that. And whether it's veterinarians getting more background in behavior or more in welfare or, you know, zoo care professionals getting more background in uh, science, in behavior and in thinking and problem solving, uh, I think it's really key. And earlier when we spoke, you talked about science, what science is, what it's not. And can you delve a little bit into this topic? What does it mean to be scientific, to have a scientific attitude or approach? So there's a couple of things that make something scientific. First of all, you can prove that it's not the case. If you can't prove it's not the case, you can't falsify it. And falsification is at the heart of it. So I said, it's not about gathering evidence in support of your beliefs. You know, that's what a lot of people do. You know, well, here's all the evidence of this. You know, this happened. Therefore, this is the case. And you think, well, yeah, but there are other explanations. So you have to have alternative explanations and you have to be able to disprove something. The other in essential ingredient of something scientific, and, you know, it's, there's nothing magical about science, it's, is that, um, you know, not only that it's, it can be disproved, but also that it can be replicated what you've done. It's systematic. You've got a process that you follow so that if I do an experiment and I describe it in a certain way, you should be able to do the same experiment and get the same result. So they're the two requirements. And that's what we've tried to bring into the clinical behavior field is say, right, okay, here is a systematic framework that I've just gone through where you look at, you know, the context, the arousal, you look at behavioral tendencies and you look at the um, signals the animal is issuing and you look to largely falsify if you, if you, and the ones that you're left with remain as possible explanations, then it becomes an element of clinical judgment, what you think is most likely. And that is part of the skill. And that, that's another interesting area. I mean, I, I've had the opportunity to work and say with some great scientists, um, but dealing in clinical behavior, one of the things you hear from owners quite often is, but I've always had this breed of dog. I've always treated them the same. Why is this one different? And clinical behavior, very much the science of the individual. And again, because I've perhaps come into the field slightly left of center, you know, I've not had the traditional training. I've always been thinking about the individual because I'm managing the problem with the individual. And it's easy to forget that, you know, scientists are often trained there's this population and that population and they're comparing the averages and when i read the papers you know and they say this occurs more commonly in uh, jack russell terriers than it does in labradors and you think okay that's great that's of no clinical use to me whatsoever because if the dog in front of me is a poodle i don't care whether it's more common or even if it's more common in Jack Russells than Labradors, that doesn't stop a Labrador from having it. And it's a Labrador in front of me and I've got to manage that Labrador. And so quite recently, more of my work has started to move towards understanding that how we use some of the very good scientific information on populations, really how we should be using it at the level of the individual. Because um, so an example is we've been looking at separation related problems in dogs commonly called separation anxiety and the term the reason why i avoid the term separation anxiety is it implies it's a diagnosis 
the animal has an anxiety when actually it is a presenting complaint. It takes us back to like head shaking in horses. Head shaking in horses is not a diagnosis. It's a presenting complaint. The horse is shaking its head for no apparent reason. Separation anxiety. The dog gets anxious when it is about to be separated from its owner. It tells you what is happening at that time. The question is, why is the dog doing that? And you know, we put forward a range of possible reasons why that might occur in relation to different emotions that maybe being left alone has become associated with unpleasant things like thunderstorms or fireworks. And therefore, the dog doesn't want to be left alone. Again, focus on anxiety and fear in that situation. However, what had been largely ignored in the literature was the fact that actually maybe being left alone was actually quite frustrating for the dogs. And therefore, they didn't like being left alone. So it's anxiety in so much as it's the anticipation of something unpleasant, but it's not something scary unpleasant. It's, it's something unpleasant that I don't want. So I don't want you to leave me because when you leave me, then, you know, I, there's nothing for me to do or other things happen and I get frustrated and I want to get out. I want to exercise and these sorts of things. So we started to do some work and we teased out that there were, you know, four distinct populations of dogs who were presenting with separation related problems. And so we, you know, we mustn't call it as if it's one condition. And even within that, you know, there's likely, you know, things were not a perfect fit. But the other thing it showed was just the way that frustration was really important in so many of these cases. Um, in different forms. So there was the animal who was acutely frustrated because something was happening outside. Um, and so for example, you know, the, the bin man came or something like that and the dog wanted to get at it. So therefore it went for the door um, or any time a passerby happened, those sorts of acute frustrations. But there's a lot of dogs who would settle down for a little while, but after a while, you know, they would think, well, you know, I don't want to be alone. And if they want to be alone, they want to be with someone. How do you get to be with someone? You call out for them. So you vocalize, you don't get it. That doesn't work. You go to the next level you, and they're not coming back to me. So I'm going to have to go to them. So actually, and if a dog gets into that mindset and, you know, we both knew the late great Yag Pangsep, and this is one of the things he used to speak so eloquently about was, you know, the, the separation from a strong attachment figure is a life and death situation. And the way an animal responds to that is not like a simple fear and it's not like a simple frustration. It's a different, um, neurochemically, it's a very different type of response. It's what he called panic, uh, but it's, it's not panic in the common usage of the word. That's why he spelt it with capital letters to make it distinctive. So if the dog is at home and thinking, I want to be with my human and gets into that way of thinking, then it's going to try and establish contact. It's going to go beyond just the sort of, I'm just frustrated. We've got this other emotional system. And it's not that these dogs are overly attached. Quite often it's actually that they're not getting the safety and security from their owner and from their home that you would normally expect in those situations. Um, so, um, you know, and so it just gives that much richer picture. And it's not a question of it being one emotion or the other. The other thing that became apparent from the work is that, yeah, it's these blends of emotions that come together. And, that's, you know, the, the primary emotions that Yak tended to speak about, um, you know, they form the basis of 
the emotional world we live in. Um, okay. So, so the way to think about emotions is um, a lot of the emotional systems. Yak was a, a neurophysiologist, so he thought of them as discrete entities. I, I, I see the emotional systems as, as much more diffuse networks, but it, his work was invaluable in highlighting that you have emotional systems that have evolved to deal with particular problems. And it's a little bit like having different colors. Um, and, you know, there are a certain number of primary colors and we can think about the emotional systems like that. And if you, if you think about, uh, you know, how we see the world, if we see a picture that still only has the primary colors, but it is much richer. And so our emotional experience is like that picture. It might be made up of, you know, a combination of emotional states. And, you know, the sensation we have is a state of the brain at a given time. And that's why we never feel the same from one day to the next, because the balance has changed in the same way as, you know, the primary colors are used differently in any two pictures. Uh, you know, unless we do an absolute copy, um, every picture is going to be slightly different. And so our experiences change from time to time. Yes, absolutely. And I was thinking also that, you know, you, you talk about very much about the animal and saying things like, you know, my human. So because obviously there's, you know, bonds and friendships and other words that we use to kind of describe the human animal relationship and the animal human relationship. And of course, a lot of your work has revolved around, you know, the human animal interaction. You have, you know, written about psychometric tools and but you also have very much looked at well-being, you know, with regards to suitability and selecting animals for human-animal interactions, assistive therapy. So maybe we could spend some time talking about that uh, work that you have done. Yeah. So increasingly, maybe it's because I'm getting older and I, I don't want to be working with dogs that want to bite me on a daily basis. But increasingly, yeah, trying to work with the other side of human-animal interactions, not when sort of they're the problems, but actually capitalizing on some of the benefits um, in that area has, has become uh, yeah, a real interest. And it, it's interesting because when I, again, when I first graduated, that area was starting to emerge. And whilst there is a lot of work in the field, veterinary behavior was also, it was really in its infancy. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, as I said earlier with, you know, just happened to be in a, um, at a university that gave me a lot of freedom to develop my uh, interests and areas of, of specialism. And veterinary behavior has really developed a lot, um, the, the rigor of the science, but this, the human-animal interactions field just seems to, it still hasn't really caught the light, which I don't, I don't understand why, because the potential benefits of, um, you know, that we can have from our relationships with animals is, you know, I think is enormous and greatly underestimated. And, um, and I, I'm increasingly starting to think that it's because, again, the way that science has framed, it's tended to favor simple interventions. So people have often said, well, you get a dog and this dog will have this benefit as if a dog is like a pill. Well, I can tell you, you know, if you get a dog, it might not make your health better because most of my career has been spent dealing with people who've unfortunately got dogs who've probably made their health a lot worse, um, unfortunately. 
so what we need to understand is not it's not about dog ownership it's about what you do and i have a really um nice uh, bit of work going on at the moment with my phd student Anna barcellus and we, we've basically deconstructed what it means to be an owner to what is it that you do that seems to have an impact on you and the way that we've looked at the impact is we've looked at it at two levels the first is how it makes you feel and the second is how it makes you feel about yourself and your purpose in life and so whereas the first one is more about your feelings whether it makes you feel happy and sad and the interesting thing is as we've looked at this more most of the work on well a lot of the work on human animal interactions when people assess the impact on well-being they've used those sort of emotional measures so how happy sad those sorts of things well the one thing we know is they are very labile states they change an awful lot in people so whilst that most of the measures have gone for that it's not surprising that the literature is if you look at it uh, there's a lot of negative results as well probably and there's probably nowhere near as many negative results published as there have been experiments that found negative results i no effect what i mean by negative i don't mean that they make it positively worse um because people tend not to publish results that don't show a significant difference but a number of people are increasingly concerned are sort of saying well hang on you know the data are not as consistent as we might look at as we might think and i think it's because people have oversimplified what it means to be an owner and so you know and the measures on emotion are perhaps much less reliable than measures about you know having a dog gives me a purpose in life gives me a reason to get up and it's not about how you feel it's how you feel about yourself and that's an important distinction but it's sort of yeah, the meaning of life basically for you and that those measures are much more stable and it's surprising how little literature has looked at this and this is what um, Anna's been looking at and you know we've started to do this and started to frame and we came up initially I say we Anna did all the work really um, you know, we did interviews with people and we asked them about the ways that the dogs contributed and what they actually did. And we had a list of nearly 60 different behaviours that people did with their dogs or because they owned a dog. Some of them weren't even with the dog. So shopping for the dog, you know, can have an impact on people. You don't have to have the dog with you. Um, talking to people about your dog, those sorts of things. Um, and we grouped them into these, uh, yeah, these sort of 60 odd different types of activity and have managed to produce this framework. And we've now done the same with cats. We've done the same with owners in Brazil, as well as in the UK. And we got consistent results. Cats came up with similar, but also some differences. And now more recently, we've started to do it with people with various mental health issues as well. Um, and we've just finished some work with people with autism. And what's interesting is there's some really interesting um, additional insights from people who suffer from autism um, and the benefits that the dog brings. And perhaps one of the most stunning things without giving away too much um, is, you know, we, we, you hear people say how important their dog is to them. Within the autism population amongst adults, we know that suicide is a big issue. Um, 
and the number of people in the interviews who said their dog had stopped them from committing suicide because you know perhaps they were aware of the fact that if they killed themselves nobody would look after their dog that came as a real sort of bolt to us you know and you think whoa this is something you know this is not just sort of making people feel happy this is keeping people alive and you know we need people to be aware that you know it is more complicated it's not a simple intervention having a dog it's not going to be good for everyone and you know and we've we've we try to make that point but you know sometimes people want to get their message across and they oversimplify it it's about the right person with the right dog and what they can work with them and the other area in that field which i've got interested in which again and i think we're starting to see it take off now just the last year or two is um because people are starting to think about dogs and the value that they can bring and using them in all sorts of different contexts so you've seen the explosion you know of emotional support animals and things like that people are starting to ask questions what's in it for the dog from this point of view you know uh, from their point of view how do they feel about it and the welfare of dogs in animal assisted therapy or animals in animal assisted therapy has largely been overlooked and, and again i'm not saying that people don't care for the animals they mean what's best but perhaps we've not stepped back far enough and just thought about it from the the animal's point of view so one of the things that we've recently proposed is this idea that um if you have, want to use an animal in a particular type of intervention, whether that be therapy, education purpose, you should write a job spec. And that job spec should be as detailed for the dog as, or the horse or the cat or the guinea pig as it is for the person, you know, the professional involved as well. And you should make sure that the animal in effect gives its consent by having the opportunity to withdraw without any consequence negative consequences because that is the animal's opportunity to say i don't like this so uh, again from a clinical behavior point of view one of the ideas that i've tried to promote is the importance of what we call a safe haven and a safe haven is a place you can go to knowing you are safe it's not a place you go to hoping you will be safe the dog that runs to the cupboard under the stairs when there's a thunderstorm trembling is not in a safe haven the dog is hoping it is going to be safe um, as opposed to knowing it will be safe. A safe haven is somewhere you, you train the dog and you train that no harm will ever happen to it. You give the dog the right of choice. So you never put the lead on the dog when he's in a safe haven and take him for a walk. What you do is if he's in a safe haven, you say, do you want to go for a walk? If he comes out, you can put the lead on. If he says, if he stays in his safe haven, he's saying no, thank you. It's a way of him saying no, thank you without a growl. Um, and as a result, the dog learns that no harm ever happens to me. So when there is a thunderstorm, he goes there and he settles because this is my safe place. And I know that that's my safe place. And that needs to be in every room where there are animals being used in animal assisted interventions as well. So they can say, this is my safe mat. If I go here and, you know, you have to protect that as well. So whoever you're doing the therapy with has to respect that rule. If they can't, then, you know, we have to change the rules of access to make sure that there is a physical barrier to prevent them from doing that. And that puts the animal in control. And if the animal has that sense of control, you know, then we can take a lot more measures to safeguard their well-being. 
Yes, and this is something that, you know, so many zoos and aquariums, but also sanctuaries, they're really actively, you know, looking at, for example, the children's, the petting zoo, you know, where the goats are and, and everybody else and really having these true safe havens. People cannot go there, but the, if the animals want to get away from the public, they could move there. Uh, you know, zoos are experimenting, mm. for example, with ambassador animals, you know, putting a, a stick in front of them. And if the bird or the reptile doesn't step on or glide on yeah. the snake, the animals are not being carried out. And yeah. you know, so there's these kind of questions uh, being asked and the animals, as you say, giving uh, their consent their, through their behavior, through the choices they make. And also in training, you know, having little places for animals to go back to if they don't want to participate anymore. So they have all kinds of options. Um, so, and it, I think that's, again, when you talked about, you know, what are the practical opportunities for us? What can we do to change the way, how we work? Those are some of the great examples. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to talk about all this. Uh, and, and, and again, also, you know, especially because choice and control are often used and it's like, okay, well, what does that look like? You know, in what way do we do that meaningfully for the animals that we care for and whether, you know, they are ambassador animals or they're animal assisted or anything else. Yeah. So we're almost coming to the end of this podcast. And, you know, there's a whole list still here of things that we could talk about, but hopefully, you know, maybe some other time we can hear about, you know, stress and pheromone therapy and all the other amazing things you do. But I think, you know, you and I are taping this uh, podcast in a, in a time that is extraordinary in the sense of trying difficult um it's covid time pandemic for almost a year and and some of your research has already revolved also around human animal relationships and interactions and mental and physical health during the first lockdown in covid so could you talk a little bit uh, about this please Yes, yeah, so I'm very fortunate, again, working with colleagues at a number of institutions that we had the opportunity to um, start when COVID broke, we, you know, again, I'm one of these people who I, I often see the opportunities and, you know, as disastrous as COVID has been, it was a really interesting opportunity as a scientist, although some of my researchers had to close down, here was a chance to see well, what is going to happen, you know, there's going to be a really big change in the dynamic between um, uh, people and their pets, but also people are under enormous stress and what's happening. And, you know, we've seen, you know, pedigree dogs have more than tripled in value. Um, people are buying up with people are worried about what's going to happen as we start people return to work. Are they then going to abandon these animals? Are we going to have this absolute wave? And so, um, you know, I've, I come at it from the animal point of view. I have a good colleague uh, at York, Eleanor Ratchen, who is very much a health person, but has an interest in animal welfare as well. And together we've sort of worked with, a, a, you know, a large team of individuals who share our, our interests and started to look at both the human side um, and also from the animal point of view. And I also worked with colleagues in America. We um, still got to number crunch, but we did a longitudinal study sort of on a monthly basis, following people through what was happening and how their animals were responding. So one of the key things is that those people that um, have a, a companion animal, 
that the impact of COVID and the lockdowns that we've had to go through has been less um, if they've got a companion animal. It um, doesn't really matter what the companion animal is. Um, and there are also maybe some evidence to suggest that engagement generally with wildlife, wildlife in your garden can also have protective effects as well. Um, the people with the stronger bonds actually had the worst mental health going into COVID. Um, so, you know, and that, that is consistent with some other data that, you know, the relationship that somebody forms may actually um, partly reflect their own mental health status. Um, and that opens up another interesting area, whether or not we can use that relationship partly almost, um, you know, as an aid to diagnosis for some of these um, human mental health states that are difficult to access because, the, you know, whether the person is, uh, you know, holding back for one reason or another, but maybe that can help uh, health clinicians at, at that level as well. Um, some of the preliminary data that I've not published, but I'll, sort of when I looked at some of the data, and I'll give you a sneak preview on that, um, with relation to the separation-related problems in dogs, what we haven't seen, as far as I can tell from looking at the data, and it might change as I, I do the proper analysis, we're not seeing more dogs develop the problem during lockdown, but those dogs with the predisposition may be getting a bit worse. Um, so the lockdown itself um, doesn't seem to be increasing the instance. Whether or not when people return to work, we're going to see um, that change, we're not sure um, in relation, and we've just got to keep monitoring the situations and see what happens there. Um, but there's been quite a lot of publicity about that. And I think people are perhaps a little bit more aware. And I think we're more likely to see greater abandonment. So we won't actually find out whether or not the dogs are more likely to suffer from separation related problems because the just, owners are just gonna give them up um, regardless of, of that, um, which I think will be a sad consequence because clearly the, the companion animal has benefited their health. And I hope that, you know, the owners can fully appreciate that and accommodate the animal as they return to work. Um, but it does, it, it sort of reflects again, some of the work that we've been doing, you know, a lot of that importance of emotion. And when we make decisions that are largely emotionally based, then offering rational solutions doesn't work because they're not thinking rationally. Um, and so we've got to find ways of tapping into people whereby they recognize, yeah, you know, that whether they're making rational or emotional decisions, the two can agree with each other. But often when we make an emotional decision, we haven't thought through the consequences fully. And that's what can lead people, unfortunately, to make a poor decision um, in the long term, as far as the animal's well-being goes. Yes, thank you. And you have already, you know, shared so much about your research and some great tangents and stories. And we all love, of course, animal stories. And, you know, at the end of this podcast, do you have perhaps an animal, you know, story or a discovery or something that was exciting in the over 30 years that you've been working that as a final story you could share with us? Putting you on here. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I don't know. There's so many animal stories. Um so, I mean, well, I, I, I'll tell you, um, 
I'll tell you a story from before 30 years ago, more than, more than 50 years ago, because as I mentioned, I'm, I'm the youngest of five children. I had two brothers. Uh, I have two brothers who are the eldest two. Uh, then I have there are two sisters. And then there was a bit of a gap. And then there was me. So my brothers used to play. My sisters used to play with each other. And I used to have the dogs to play with. And my mum tells me that, you know, um, you know, because there was that little bit of a gap. My mum had one year, one after another each year. Um, and then there was a little gap with me. And um, she told me that by the age of two, I could train a dog. I was thinking, oh, that's, that was, I know. But I had to. And I, I got bitten by the dogs, I can tell you. But, you know, I learned through trial and error. Um, and maybe that's where it all came from. I don't know. Um, but jokingly, my mum my told me um, a story that, well, I said to her one day, when am I going to be a real boy? And she said, what do you mean? She said, you are a real boy. And she said, but when you meet friends, you say, I've got two boys, two girls and Daniel. <laughs> that's because she just went through them the order that they were born. And so, um, so yeah. Um, I had the dogs to play with at an early stage and, uh, you know, and it's that watching animals and I, I, I'm, you know, and I watch people as well. Um, and I think a lot of us who end up in this field, that's their background as well. There's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of pleasure to be had from just watching animals. You don't actually have to be doing necessarily that much, you know, and going back to horses, you can have so much fun with a horse without even getting on its back. Um, and I think more people, if they realize that, um, you know, there's great opportunities there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining this podcast. And, and truly, you know, it was really enlightening and so many great nuggets and insights from Victorian books to childhood stories to, you know, really systematic science. And, and I think also you just dipped and different approaches of your background and, you know, combining the various different sciences uh, together. That is really, really strong. So, yeah, thank you so much again for coming onto the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to see you.